I love the concept of migration. <laughs> How can I not? I myself have been, a, I migrated to Botswana. I might, okay, they were jobs, but it's, it's a form of migration. And I, th I think, I want to believe the world would be a better place um, with more mixing. A person moves for, you don't even have to know why they're moving. They choose to move in this world that we all inhabit together. Jumbo and Karibuni to Expulsion at 50, an oral history project using podcasts. This series has been created to commemorate the 50-year anniversary of the expulsion of Asians from Uganda back in 1972. My name is Dolores In this episode, I speak to Sandra Anderson from a home in Tucson, Arizona in the United States. Sandra is a dear friend, mentor, and listener of the podcast. She also has a very special relationship to Uganda, which goes back to the early 1970s. I hope you enjoy listening to her story. I was married at the time. We were living in Berlin, Germany for three years. My husband was a youth pastor in a German, even uh, Lutheran church, but he had studied theology in the States. That was in California in the sixties. It was all about liberation theology. James Cone was this black theologian of the time. It was about black empowerment through theology, going back to Africa. There was a, a Kenyan <clears throat> theologian named John Mbiti, who was um, kind of redefining theology in the post-colonial era, because they were also trying to knit together these ideas of socialism and equality of human beings with black theology or some people called it third world theology. So we flew from Berlin to Cairo in September, 1972. So right in the middle of this expulsion happening in our destination was East Africa, took all the money we had saved, which was about $3,000. And we said, we'll travel in, in Africa as when we want, where we want. Oh, can you imagine now in these COVID times, the freedom of that? Oh, we traveled with every possible transportation mechanism you can imagine. We took a camel barge from Aswan, from Luxor, Egypt, uh, into Khartoum, to Wadi Halfa, 
Then we rode on the top of a train into Khartoum and we rode on the back of a lorry taking old Danish newspapers to, it was in Ethiopia. I mean, Haile Selassie was still the president. And we went to what is now Eritrea. We were in Asmara and, and we came to Nairobi by Christmas of 1972. So by then that, that Asian expulsion from from Uganda was sort of wrapping up. You know, we didn't have access to much news or newspapers along the way, but we knew this was happening. The East Africa community was sort of falling apart, that the, the borders were basically closed to Uganda. So we knew the Asians were being kicked out and it all seemed like a very sad thing because the East Africa community was all a part of this post-colonial revitalization, African cooperation. <clears throat> that was all such an encouraging thing. We decided we would go, not to Uganda, we would go to Tanzania and we went as far south as Malawi, which was wonderful. During that time, of course, we met we met a lot of Africans and we heard their stories. We met some Indians, some Asians in all of those countries. Of course, most of the shops, the little dukas in the villages, they were no matter how small the village was, there was a general store and there was always an, an Asian sitting uh, at the cash register. Our discussions included about Uganda and what was happening and this Idi Amin seems like a bad character, but it was also about black empowerment. You know, that's what we had been in the middle of in the States. And now that's a theme here. And this removal of Asians maybe gives Africans better chance to do business opportunities. We wrapped up our trip after nine months. I was pregnant, we went back to the States. We had children. I did my PhD. And then when I got a, I got a divorce, and then when I had the chance again to think about a transition I really wanted to go to back to Africa, and that's when I went to Botswana. So it's the early 1980s, and you find yourself in Botswana at a time of historic significance. When I was in Botswana is when the first AIDS case was diagnosed in Botswana. This is 1983 to 86. People thought it was just a complete anomaly. It was still the era of GRID, you know, a gay related disease. It comes from San Francisco. This is not an African issue. We don't have homosexuality here and we certainly don't have AIDS here. 10 years later, 
about 30% of the prenatal women in Botswana were HIV positive. I had a chance then to, le to leave WHO in Nepal and join the global program on AIDS in Geneva in 1989. Working for the WHO, Sandra finally made it to Uganda in 1991. I felt so pleased because it, it had always been there on the horizon and I felt deprived of being able to go there. Uganda was kind of the epicenter of AIDS in Africa. That's where the first uh, national AIDS program was started a couple of years earlier, probably more like 88, 89, President Museveni was there from 1986 or thereabouts. He did manage with the help of Tanzania and his Guria soldiers to kick out Oboti and Amin. He was seen as the great liberator in a way. And in addition to kind of having rescued his country from these dictators, he was open to AIDS. And because of people like my friend, Noreen Kaleba, who brought her personal experience and her integrity and humanity to treating people and their families, uh, not like outcasts, but people worthy of support and started an organization called TASO. So all of that meant for someone working in a global program on AIDS to go to Uganda was like going to Mecca. This is where you learn what it, what is, um, what is openness? What is acceptance? What is support? What does it mean to fight this stigma? And that's where we went to learn about that. And it was Uganda. And my area was not about prevention of AIDS, but it was about AIDS care. And of course, Uganda was really the only, one of the few countries, certainly out of um, the developed world that was trying to respond to the needs of people. So that's where I, I went on my first home care visit. And this home care, community-based care, a continuum of care for people with AIDS, which became kind of my signature work in WHO, started because of being able to see the Ugandan model and what they were doing a transformational experience really, to go to people so poor, so outcast, so struggling with beautiful young people who were sick and dying and they didn't even have an aspirin to relieve pain or gentian violet to remove thrush or anything. I mean, we were, you know, 
helping people to grow aloe at home so they would stamp something to treat the infections. And it was pretty basic, but it was this first response. And there were also great scientists, a lot uh, of inspirational Ugandans in just across the spectrum from the guy who brought eggs to Tasso and gave people food to eat to these scientists who were doing research on every aspect of AIDS. In your interactions with Ugandans, what did they say about Idi Amin and what had happened in those years? One of the things, one of the memories I have is of the Nile Hotel. When we would go by that building, people would point out, oh, that's where Edie Amin hung out. That was his hotel. That is where he both entertained people and where he tortured people. It just exuded this kind of scary, creepy thing. It was, there were lots of big trees around there where these morbid marabou storks would be sitting in the trees. I don't know, it just, it was, it was kind of a scary place. People didn't talk about it that much, except sometimes I remember at more informal gatherings, about being a young medical student and being called to Idi Amin's abode with a bunch of other women, yeah, like young medical students, just how terrified they were. And they would just try to fade into the woodwork but he would come and talk to them and he'd dance with them. And he was basically just grooming and vetting them um, for his own pleasures. The Asians were expelled, 80,000, or I don't know exactly what number is on that. But there was almost something like tribal genocide happening during this time in Uganda. And I mean, some of the first numbers were 80,000 Ugandans were killed, but I think in more recent times, people think it's more like a half a million people. They were tortured just brutally and killed. And that was, that was the backdrop to those, to those eight years. Um, they were a, really a traumatized people it's still something they need to c come to grips with. It was, it was really a dark and awful and, and terrifying time for everybody, I think, mm -hmm. especially those in tribes that were not in favor. Sandra, what would you say have been the main takeaways from listening to the podcasts? 
Because of many reasons. I mean, the period of time, culture, uh, the pain of it, people uh, left that box closed. They didn't want to open it. They didn't want to revisit it. They didn't want to burden their children with painful memories. So they locked it up. But one of the things that uh, in just in the last one that I listened to, it really hit me when he said, um, in, in my years of living in Uganda, my home country where I was born and where I brought up, I was never in the home of an African. That really hit me and I started thinking about these parallel societies when people live in these, these um, tracked groups. It doesn't lead to anywhere good. Diversity isn't people living in separate parallel tracks. Diversity is when people are relating to each other and at least attempting to understand each other and their differences and sharing their special foods and their language or, you know, that kind of togetherness. And when he said that, um, and thinking back on the other ones too, that except for school kids who might have been in school, um, and employer-employee relationships. There was contact, but it was very prescribed contact. It wasn't the kind of easy socialization of you run in my house and I run in yours and we, oh, why don't you stay over tonight? Let's have a sleepover. It, it wasn't like that. They loved Uganda. They had a good life in Uganda. The climate in Uganda is perfect. You can throw out a pit of something and it's gonna grow. The people are friendly, uh, they're kind. It's just, there's so many good things you can say about Uganda. And I think um, that that cohort of Indians who came maybe to build the railroad and stayed on or, you know, the various reasons that why people move in the world brought them to a really good place where there were all kinds of business opportunities. There wasn't much business, so they could do, it was just kind of a wide open. And so they found very fertile soil, literally and figuratively to start their lives. And it was a good life but it maybe wasn't a very integrated life. I love the concept of migration. <laughs> How can I not? I myself have been, a, I migrated to Botswana. I might, okay, they were jobs, but it's, it's a form of migration. And I, th I think, I want to believe the world would be a better place um, with more mixing. A person moves for, you don't even have to know why they're moving. They choose to move in this world that we all inhabit together. But it has become so complex and just 
filled with, with complicated laws, some meant to protect, some meant to exclude. Um, and the United States is in the middle of uh, another, what some people want to call a crisis and other people just call desperate people making desperate choices. And so often that's what migration has become in this world is desperate people who will risk everything to, to try to find something better for themselves and their family. But it's looked upon as almost like a, a war or a battle or you know a locking out and as though the wall showed to you you know you think why did the chinese build a wall to exclude their enemies why did why was the berlin wall there well that was more about containment but it was about controlling the movement of people and that's what this wall as ugly as it is in all ways is meant to do. It's, it's to control the movement of people. These people are moving because of a colonial past or an exploitation in their country or the world not tending to global warming and we're gonna have climate refugees. That's our history just catching up with us. If we don't want to deal with the misfortune of other people from their historical past, we should create a world with less misfortune. have a personal story I would love to hear from you especially if you ended up in Scandinavia Australia New Zealand or even South America the email address is expulsion50 at gmail.com or on twitter at expulsion50 till next time keep well and safe